I'm Elspeth. Uh, our Bible reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you need a Bible, um, put up your hand and one of the ushers will bring one to you. It's on page 1029 in the church Bibles. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we're reading. 2 Corinthians, sorry. (laughs) I got it right the first time. Boasting is necessary. It is not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a human being is not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. For if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool, because I would be telling the truth. But I will spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me, But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have been a fool. You forced it on me. You ought to have commended me, since I am not in any way inferior to those super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of an apostle were performed with unfailing endurance among you, including signs and wonders and miracles. So in what way are you worse off than the other churches? except that I personally did not burden you. Forgive me for this wrong. Look, I am ready to come to you this third time. I will not burden you, since I am not seeking what is yours, but you. For children ought not save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Now granted, I did not burden you, yet sly as I am, I took you in by deceit. Did I take advantage of you by any of those I sent you? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus didn't take advantage of you, did he? Didn't we walk in the same spirit and in the same footsteps? Have you been thinking all along that we were defending ourselves to you? No. In the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ, and everything, dear friends, is for building you up. For I fear that perhaps when I come, 
I will not find you to be what I want, and you may not find me to be what you want. Perhaps there will be quarrelling, jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambitions, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I fear that when I come, my God will again humiliate me in your presence, and I will grieve for many who sinned before and have not repented of the moral impurity, sexual immorality and sensuality they practised. It's definitely worth keeping your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, Interesting chapter, but it's fantastic and good for us to study God's Word as He speaks to us clearly uh, in His Word, the Bible. Uh, Let's pray as we come to consider what God has to say to us today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you love us with an everlasting love. You've proven this, demonstrated this once and for all in Jesus' death and resurrection. Thank you that we belong to you because of your grace and your mercy. Help us now to listen to your amazing word, to be transformed by it so that we know how to live for you and long for the day when Christ returns. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, have you ever wondered why God doesn't send visions and dreams anymore? I mean, Pharaoh had dreams and Joseph interpreted them, so you know what to do. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and Daniel interpreted them. Daniel had his own visions. In this passage, Paul has a spiritual experience, vision of being taken up into heaven. He'd also personally experienced Jesus, the risen Jesus, appearing to him and him only on the road to Damascus. Why don't we get visions and dreams? The Apostle Peter sees a vision of a massive sheet full of every kind of animal coming down from heaven and God says, they're all clean, eat them all. There's a way of saying there's no longer any distinction between Jews and Gentiles, no barrier anymore. The Apostle John is given a vision, a vision of heaven and the Lord Jesus himself, a vision of what is now and what must take place next, the book of Revelation. So why don't we get visions and dreams now? And the simple answer is because we have something better. We have the completeness, we have the fullness of God's revelation of himself in his word. It's full, it's complete, it's sufficient, it's enough, it's everything. In the Bible, people are given glimpses along the way so that they can write down God's plan and purpose and promise. They can write down what they saw for our benefit. That's what the Bible says. These prophets were given visions so they could write it down for us. And all these people at different times are given different parts of the message, different glimpses of the gospel. We have the fulfillment and the complete package. So in the end, us wanting visions now is a bit like wanting to take a pregnancy test after your child has been born. Why would you want to take the test? Why would you look for a hint? Why would you look for a promise? Why would you think you needed proof of what's to come when you already have your child? They're already here. See, at the time, before, taking the test was helpful and good. But you don't need it now that your child has been born. It's just like getting an ultrasound. It's great. It's exciting. Before your baby is born, gives you a glimpse, kind of, of what the baby's going to look like and how they're going. You can kind of see how they are. But then when your baby is born, you get to really see your child face to face. You have them. You hold them. You see them clearly, directly. It's just like that 
with the way God has revealed himself to us. God gave visions and dreams in the past, glimpses, promises, assurances of what was to come, but we don't need them now. When we have the fullness, we have the completeness, we have the reality of knowing God personally, intimately, deeply in Jesus Christ through his word. I mean, why do we read about visions being given to Christians in the New Testament? Well, it's because the Bible is still being written. The New Testament is still being written at that time. The work of visions in them was so that it could be written down for us. So let me uh, back that up with a few Bible verses where God is telling us this very thing. I think they're coming up on the screen. Is that right? There's some Bible verses. Here we go. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. We're not waiting for something more. We're not mostly equipped for life, but a few extra things are going to help us along the way. We have everything we need for life, for godliness, through the knowledge of him. What about Hebrews? In the past... God spoke, uh, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things, made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In the past, God spoke in different ways. Now he's spoken by his son. Christ is the fullness of God, the exact representation of God, the very identity of God full expression of who God is, and we have him. Jude 1 verse 3 says, we have the faith once and for all entrusted to the saints. Not chapter 2, waiting for the rest of it to be fulfilled. The faith has once and for all been entrusted to Christians. It's done, it's complete, it's been given to us. Galatians, Paul says, if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than what you first heard, let him be eternally condemned. What you heard, what you have is everything is enough. An angel could come and tell you something else, something different, something more. Ignore them. They need to be condemned forever. We have it all. Psalm 19, even in the Old Testament, David knows, David sings that God's word is perfect trustworthy, right, radiant, enlightening, sure, and altogether righteous. God's word is precious and good, and we have it completely. So I want to say, and of course there's 2 Timothy 3.16. Let me just kind of whack that one up there as well. All scripture, the writings, it's a fancy word for what's written down. All scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thoroughly equipped, every good work. All scripture is God-breathed and it gets you most of the way there. Everything you need, thoroughly equipped, every good work. So what I want to say is that desiring visions and churches that promise you visions, wishing you could have some extra supernatural experience comes from the sense that God has something else he needs to tell us. He has some other assurance of love. He has some other guiding voice. He has some other cause for hope. He has some other word of salvation other than the perfect word of his son dying for us. And it's just not true. He has given us everything in giving us his son, his word. Which brings us finally to our passage then after that minor rant, and this vision 
that it becomes clear that it's Paul having this vision. But the point of even mentioning this vision, this experience, is actually all about humility. It's an important lesson in humility. Even the way he describes it is humble. Have a look at uh, verse 1. Boasting is necessary, it's not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise. Heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. He doesn't give into many details about this man. He says a certain man had an experience 14 years ago being taken up into heaven, into paradise. doesn't know if it was in the body or if it was out of the body. Taken up into the presence of God. That's what he means by the third heaven, the sense of heaven where God is. People of the Bible would often refer to the sky where the clouds are as the heavens. And sometimes we'll say, you know, the heavens opened and it rained, so that's kind of heaven. Then where the sun and moon and stars are, that's kind of heaven as well. But the third heaven is where God is. This man was taken up to the throne room of God, to paradise, and he hears words that he is not permitted to speak. And what he's describing here is a pretty similar experience to what the Apostle John goes through in Revelation. He's on the island of Patmos on the Lord's day and he sees a window open into heaven. He sees the risen Lord Jesus. He hears the glorious and overwhelming message of what is happening now and what will take place next and he's told, write it down. And I take it Paul here has given a similar glimpse into that reality, spiritual truth. He hears these wonderful inexpressible words but it's not his to tell that message. That's going to be John. He's told, like Daniel in his visions, not to share it until the proper time. So Paul describes this man having an amazing experience. And then verse 6, he says, look, if I was ever going to enter, you're really immature, you're really ungodly, you're really worldly competition of boasting over who's the most impressive, I would actually win it easily. But he's trying to point out the stupidity of thinking like the world. And boasting like the world, boasting in your own glory and your own greatness like the super apostles do. And he's being very careful that they don't drag him into their unhelpful way of thinking. Because the whole point of him sharing this vision, this experience, and the reason why I think it's clear that the man is actually him, is in verse 7. Therefore, halfway through, therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Paul is saying, look, I could go on about all the spectacular, extraordinary experiences I've had so that you think I'm amazing, but it is not the point. That's not ministry. That's not the work of the gospel. All ministry, all service, all of life for Christians is to point people to the glory and greatness and majesty of Jesus. So Paul says, well, let me tell you about my weakness. Let me tell you about my suffering. Let me tell you my hardship and my humiliation so that you trust Jesus and so that you know the authenticity of my ministry. His pain, he says, had a purpose. The reason Paul was given this thorn in the flesh 
was so that he would not exalt himself to keep him from becoming conceited. See, I want you to imagine someone's drowning at the beach. They are like seriously in trouble. They're caught in a rip. Their lungs are already kind of half full of water anyway. They're desperate. They're helpless. They've been under. It's bad. But finally, a lifesaver comes and rescues them, drags them up onto dry land, and they're saved. And then that drowning person starts bragging and boasting to the people around and saying, I am the greatest swimmer in the world. Because look, I just survived a deadly powerful rip. And here I am on dry land. I must be amazing. Or imagine someone who finds out they have a long lost uncle who's just died and, they've, and left them $5 million. And they start to boast and tell everyone, I'm the greatest businessman in the world. Look at how amazing I am at financial decisions. My money skills are extraordinary. I went from having nothing to $5 million overnight. I'll be writing a book about how you can be just as successful as I am. It's stupid, isn't it? And it's wrong. In fact, it's kind of offensive to the one who truly did all the work and saved them or gave them so much. But you see, Christians do this sometimes. Christ has forgiven us when we were slaves to unrighteousness. Christ has rescued us when we were powerless. Christ has raised us when we were dead in our sins, the Bible says. Christ has done it all. Salvation is a free gift. Jesus had to die on the cross for me to live. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is free. And then Christians sometimes have the audacity to turn around and say, well, look at me. I'm a good person. Look at me. I've been saved because I turned my life around. Look at all the good things that I do. I go to church. I give. I don't live like the world at all. And yes, it is true that being a Christian changes your life and puts you in a much better place. And that we are blessed with amazing spiritual riches and blessings. We become more and more fruitful and more and more godly. Just like standing on the beach is better than drowning in the water. But we need to remember how we got there. We didn't do it. It's all of God. So humans have this inbuilt habit of taking all the credit ourselves for what God has done. Exalting ourselves instead of exalting God. Living for ourselves instead of living for God. And because of this, which the Bible calls sin, Paul was given something to remind him it's all about God. To keep him from exalting himself. And it sounds hard, doesn't it? He got a thorn in his flesh. A messenger from Satan to torment him. He doesn't go into much details about what it is. Some form of physical suffering and hardship Weakness in him reminds him he can't do things by his own strength. Some people think it may have been a really painful eye condition uh, because he does write to the Galatians in uh, chapter 4. He says, you know, when I visited you, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So people think maybe that's him saying, I've had this horrible thing and you wanted to help me. Maybe that's it. Some people think it's depression for no reason in the Bible whatsoever. They just think it could be that. Uh, I don't think that's... Uh, any indication for that could be it, but some people think it. It doesn't say, though. That's the point. It was difficult. It was painful. Look at verse 8. Concerning this, 
I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. Rightly, Paul prays, Paul pleads, Paul relies on God. I need your strength. I need your help. Please take this pain away. Please take this torment away. But God in his love and God in his kindness and God in his perfect fatherly care for Paul says, verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. You hear that? God says to him, I have a better plan for you than you being comfortable all the time, than you being healthy all the time, than you being safe all the time. I have a more glorious purpose for you than that your life is easy and relaxed. I love you so much. I want far better things for you than these brief, temporary ease in this life. Because God isn't handing out a drug that like masks our pain and so we feel okay, but everything underneath is still going wrong. No, he addresses the real issue. He says, I will keep reminding you, Paul, that this place isn't your home. I will keep reminding you that there is something better waiting for you in the resurrection to eternal life. I will keep reminding you that you need to trust in me. My grace is enough, says God. My loving kindness, my mercy, my forgiveness is sufficient for you. Whatever you're facing, you don't have to handle it by yourself. You don't have to face it on your own. On your own, You don't have to try and do it by your own strength. I'm with you, says God. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. My grace is sufficient for you. Because my power is perfected in weakness. My power in you to save you, to keep you, to protect you until the day of resurrection and the end of all suffering. My power is made complete and perfect in weakness. And that's the gospel, isn't it? Jesus, the Son of God, was born in weakness and frailty as a helpless, vulnerable baby in a manger. Jesus grew up and lived in weakness and tiredness and the fragility of being a human. And Jesus went through the ultimate weakness and frailty and humiliation of dying on the cross. But in that weakness, in fact, is revealed God's perfect, glorious power. In that ordinariness, in that frailty, in that rejection and mocking and death is displayed God's majestic, almighty power to save and forgive sinners. God's power is displayed in what looks like weakness to the world. Notice Paul doesn't begrudge God the right to make this choice. He doesn't say, and I've been resenting him saying no ever since. He wouldn't remove the suffering, but he's God, whatever, I get on with it. It's not what he says. He totally gets that God's grace is enough. So verse 9, he says, Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. Most gladly boasting about my weaknesses, not my strength, my failures, not my success, my hardships. You can find churches just down the road that will tell you Christ's power in you looks like you boasting in success. Paul says, "Uh, I boast in weakness because then it's all about Christ's power. I'm glad, I'm confident, I boast, I rejoice in these hardships Because in them, Christ's power is at work in me. How do you know Christ is at work in you as a Christian? 
How do you know God's power is with you and in you and for you? Not when your life is perfect. Not when you have it all together. Not when everything is smooth and comfortable. Not when you feel like you can rely on yourself. God's power in you is perfected in weakness. Look at verse 10. So I take pleasure in weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, it sounds a little bit like Paul is a crazy man here, isn't it? He's turned everything upside down. He's one of those nutbar monks who lives out in the desert for a while. Actually, what Paul has done is turned everything right side up. When he says, I take pleasure in weakness, what he's saying is, I take pleasure in the infinite power of God. I've got nothing. It's all about him. I take pleasure in the affirmation and word of his acceptance, even though I'm insulted. I delight in the glory of his kingdom, even when I face hardship and persecution. I take pleasure in the comfort and the joy of eternity. I find real happiness in the true rest that we will have in heaven, even when I face difficulties. The weaker I am, the more I trust God. The harder life is, the more I long for the life to come. It's all about Christ, says Paul. So I'm happy to tell you how weak and unimpressive I am because the less there is of me, the more there is of God. The weaker that you see I am, the more clear it is that everything is by God's power. That gives us real confidence, doesn't it? Not just to face hardship, which we will all go through and many of us are going through right now, but to be able to admit our limitations to one another as people, as a church. Even if people scoff at us, even think less of us, dismiss us like they did Paul, it's not about us, it's about our Saviour Jesus. Yes, we are weak. But here's the thing. What Paul finds so hard is that he can actually understand that the world laughs at him, the world thinks he's weak and foolish, but this whole letter has him been pouring out how deeply heartbroken he is that a church he started, that a church he loves, that he spent time with, that he served and taught and led, is dismissing him in the same way the world does, that the church thinks he's weak and think he's worthless. Breaks his heart. And in one sense, it all started with Paul's biggest mistake. This is his big mistake. He did his ministry among them free of charge. Have a look at verse 11. I have been a fool. You forced it on me. You ought to have commended me since I am not in any ways inferior to those super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of an apostle were performed with unfailing endurance among you, including signs and wonders and miracles. So in what way are you worse off than the other churches except that I personally did not burden you? Forgive me for this wrong. Sorry for not charging you, he says. Please forgive me for being such a terrible leader as to pour myself out for you sacrificially and serve you and love you and teach you for free. My mistake. Now, just as an aside, you might be wondering, if Paul did it free of charge, why don't do all ministers? But that's like saying, because Stuart Hannah does a whole lot of building work around here for free, therefore all builders should never charge. See, Paul has said back in 1 Corinthians 9, he had every right to be paid. He had every right to be supported financially. He had every right for the church to look after his needs. He says in numerous places, 
Churches should financially support the work of the gospel and the worker deserves his wages. Ministers, he says, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, are worthy of double honour. But Paul has this choice by his own generosity to decline getting paid. We have a plumber who does some work for our church, Christian brother, but uh, not at our church. He often generously doesn't bill us. Maybe his billing system is so disorganised he meant to and we've never got the bill, but I think it's just actually really kind. He's worked for us. He deserves to be paid. We'd be happy to pay him. In fact, we're obligated to pay him. But it's his choice not to be. Same with Paul. Only he can make the choice not to be paid. The church can't make that choice, just like we can't say to the plumber, we've decided you did this job for free. It doesn't work that way. So Paul has said, I did come and do all this for free because I love you. But what's even more frustrating for Paul is that because he generously, graciously declined to be paid for this ministry in order not to be a burden to them, to show that his motives were completely focused on the gospel, because he did it for free, the Corinthians think, well, his ministry must be worth nothing. That's a slap in the face, isn't it? Thank you for working so hard for me, not even charging me, must be useless. And then along come a bunch of guys who preach a wrong gospel with wrong motives, who preach something other than Jesus, call themselves the super apostles. They're boastful, proud, arrogant and demanding and the Corinthians think, wow, they must be amazing because they demand lots of money and they have four collections during their service. They must be way godlier. You can understand why Paul is so affected by this. But then he gives us this little line. It's a great line. I love it. That in many ways sums up the Christian life and our response to the cross. I think this is the difference between him and the so-called super apostles. Verse 14. Look, I'm ready to come to you this third time. I will not burden you since I'm not seeking what is yours but you. I'm not seeking what is yours but you. I don't want your money. I don't want your possessions. I don't want to be like the super apostles who demand first-class airfares and that you put them up in five-star hotels and drive them around in limousines. They don't want you. They want your money. They don't love you. What they love is obvious. I'm not seeking what's yours. All I want is you. That's what I want. Your heart, your soul, your love, your friendship, your fellowship. In a sense, that's just like the gospel, isn't it? God does not seek our money or our religious efforts or our impressive resume. We're saved by grace. What God seeks is us. That's all he wants. Me. Being a Christian is saying to God, look, what I am is not worthy of you. I am a powerless sinner. I'm guilty. I have nothing. But what I am is yours. I give you my heart, my soul, my mind and my strength, not as a payment because it doesn't amount to anything because of my sin. But as faith and as love. And God says, that's exactly what I want. And so when Paul says he is seeking them, it's not even for his own sake. He's not saying, I don't want your money, I want you so that I can say, I've got more people. It's, I want you to be saved. In fact, he's willing to sacrifice and spend himself for them Verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. 
if I love you more, am I to be loved less? I mean, that's a parent thinking, I love my kids so much. I've poured myself out. I give my everything for you. I want you. And the kid's like, oh, I love YouTube or I love this person. They care more for me. You can hear this parental yearning for them for their own benefit. Paul is getting worked up like a parent, poured out everything for his child and the child is dissatisfied and complaining. Thank you for giving me all that stuff. In fact, just give me more stuff. He wants to assure them he's never taken advantage of them. Even when he sent others because he was delayed, it was never so he could use them for his own gain. And just in case the Corinthians hear all of this, as Paul being insecure, as Paul being defensive, as Paul lacking confidence, verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we were defending ourselves to you? No, in the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ and everything, dear friends, is for building you up. Everything I'm saying, the hard and painful words of rebuke, the loving words of encouragement, the slightly mocking words of, oh, let's boast then, shall we? The reminders of who I am as your apostle are all for edifying you. I'm strengthening you. I'm building you. And then he really opens up about his fears. This is what he's worried about. This is what he's concerned about. And it's not money and it's not comfort. The result of moving away from Christ to worldly thinking, the result of listening to false teachers who on the outside look impressive, verse 20, I fear that perhaps when I come to you, I will not find you to be what I want and you may not find me to be what you want. Perhaps there will be quarrelling, jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I fear that when I come, my God will again humiliate me in your presence. And I will grieve for many who sinned before and have not repented of the moral impurity, sexual immorality and sensuality they practiced. Paul doesn't care about the humiliation of being persecuted. He's been through a lot of that, flogged and whipped and jailed. He doesn't care about the shame of being imprisoned or rejected or kicked out of town. He can cope with the humiliation of the world thinking he's insane or worse. But the humiliation that would be unbearable to him would be to arrive once again in Corinth and see that church he loves has ignored the gospel, has ignored his teaching, has ignored his rebuke and continues in sin. This whole letter has been Paul pouring his heart out. I have loved you with everything I could possibly give and more. And this is the love of God. And here is your chance to hear it and receive it and be changed by it. Paul's deep, passionate love reflects the love of Christ. It physically hurt him to love the church like this. Because do you remember when Paul was saved, when he became a Christian, he was on a journey to persecute the church. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? The suffering that's happening, that's my suffering. And then he says, of Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And it's not a threat. That's not Jesus saying, right, payback time. It's actually the greatest privilege Paul has ever received. Jesus says, Paul, I'm going to make you like me. You're going to suffer for the church. You're going to suffer for salvation. You're going to go through pain so that others may live and others may be saved. You'll be rejected. But because you belong to me and it's my love that you're sharing. It's a good reminder for us, isn't it, that our strength, is in weakness. How we see each other, how we see the world, how the world sees us. We need to keep focusing on the cross. So let's pray.
Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus who suffered for us. Thank you for Paul, your servant, who went through so much for the sake of the church in Corinth and it was written down for our benefit. Father, please help us in our weakness, in our frailty to realise we are strong in you by your power and might. Your grace is sufficient for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.